So please, whoops, so please welcome back our guest this evening, the director of Camera Person, Kirsten Johnson, and the editor of Camera Person, Nell Spangelter. And uh, thanks to everybody for, for staying and just for staying through the credits as, as Kirsten requested. Um, you mentioned in the, in the opening that we're all part of the film now mm. and we're, it's, we're part of the team of the film. Um, our focus is going to be on the editing of the film. Um, and the editing is, again, a team effort. I was just making a note there. We have four consultant editors, assistant editors, editing supervisor, and the editor himself. And I'm guessing that you had a... Could have taken a credit. No role, no role in it. Um, so maybe just to speak a little bit about how editing works in that way when you have you as the editor, consulting editors, assistant editors. I think that I worked out there was nine. The co-editor was also listed. Uh, I didn't get her name. Amanda. Amanda. So maybe you could speak first, Nels, about the actual practicalities of having the team with you as the kind of, I don't know, the boss or the president? Yeah, well, I think that actually is funny because uh, a lot of this process was just me and Kirsten uh, in this version of the film. But over the history of the film, which we'll probably talk about a little bit, uh, there was a long, long story of how this film got to be where it is today. And it was during a lot of that time that most of the editors credited were involved. We did show this film to people who we really respected and trusted to get some sort of input, and Amanda's job was absolutely critical. What she did is spent years with Kirsten working through this material in different ways, working through previous material on the way to being able to even start beginning to make what we made here and what you watched, um, and that was, that was a, a critical role. But when it came to making this... It was myself working in Oakland, California, and Kirsten in New York. Um, and we were a small, and uh, our producers were really helpful too, Marilyn Ness and Danielle Barga. And it was a, a small, concentrated, and like deep effort on our parts to make what, what we see here. Um, because as we see in the film, you, you're, you're literally a globetrotter. Uh, I mean, you're traveling, you know, to to every corner it seems of, of the earth. But during the editing process, you were always making a point of being in New York, or were you sometimes in a in a office in in a hotel in Nairobi and a couple of times. Through? I think I was off other places. I was definitely um, still shooting, and um, actually went to Bosnia, back to Bosnia during the cutting of the film. And when we see Foccia five years later, that's that's the, the second journey. Because of course, the, the the first question which every editor has to face is where where do you say we now have enough material? We are now going to make this film because obviously you're a v- extremely busy person, professional working in the industry. And like I'm sure, since you finished this film, I bet you're sitting watching and going, ah, oh, we've got this amazing footage. What was the moment when was it you that said, right, Kirsten, stop sending me this stuff? That went back and forth because a lot of times as an editor, you'll always take more footage. I mean, I would – it's it's a rare chance that I'll say, no, I don't want to see anything else. You know, who knows what, what greater things might be added to the mix. And Kirsten the entire time was going to different films that she'd shot. You know, one scene that we tried working with would inspire her to remember a different event that had occurred – and then she had to go track down that footage, which, I mean, that's a miracle in itself that she was able to go back to these films that she'd worked on 
years, y you know, decades before, and not only get the footage, but get the permission from the director to get the footage. And it, I mean, for anybody else to do this, I don't think people understand how much of an effort just that would take. Um, but she would do that and bring in a new scene or a new bunch of footage, and we'd take a look, and, and I think Kristen would joke about it, but sometimes I would say, like, eh, you know, <laughs> it's not that great. We're not going to add it. Or other times it was brilliant, and we would. Yeah, I, I would be constantly full of, like, you know, these long stories and great promises of, you know, some piece of footage. And I was like, forever I was looking for this piece of footage with Henry Kissinger that I was promising Nels was me, like, the greatest thing that he'd ever seen. And we finally found it very close to the end, and, and it was actually fairly hilarious. And we almost put it in the film um, at the very last minute. But, but I was doing that the entire time, coming up with, like, one more great idea. Yeah, the best one was that th there was a shot of a piece of graffiti that she knew that she'd shot, and we never did find. Yeah. But on the last day of editing, I was Skyping with Kirsten, and she was stuck in a library where she was accessing, or the archives yeah. of, and she was accessing this footage so late at night that they'd actually closed down the entire place. And we were Skyping back and forth to talk about what she was finding, and she had to go to the candy machine to uh, buy some food. Yeah, yeah, it was, it yeah, was locked in public television like for 24 yeah. hours. And it was like, it was like it w this is it, we have to find this shot. Um, but did you find it? I don't think we found it. No, we it. never no, found we it. Didn't. Yeah, <laughs> it. I think it was a figment of your imagination. Yeah, and there were many figments of my imagination. I mean, I think that was what was so interesting in this process was that my memory was wildly unreliable. Um, and also the, the act of sort of decompartmentalizing all of this material uh, had very strange effects on my mind. And so that I, you know, I would basically sort of think of something that I, I, I really mattered to me and then we'd find the footage and then it would be different than the way I remembered and then I would promise that there would be something else and some other piece of footage. Um, but every time we worked through one level of footage, then something else would sort of bubble back up into my memory. Um, this is reminding me of, of a quote that I think you gave to a, an interviewer, making the film as a sort of taxonomy of Alzheimer's. In that, in the the way that you're talking about that, it's kind of like you know we all have we construct how we remember things, and you know you, you can say oh, in 19 whichever year you were in Bosnia and you think this happened, but you've actually got the footage which you can then go and find and compare it with your memory, and that's kind of scary, but it must also give you moments of joy as well as moments of disorientation. Yeah, <coughs> no. no question. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think this film's kind of even about that in that the. the the record of what Kirsten has seen during her career is here, and you can look at it objectively, but what she's remembered about it are different things, and I think that you know, reckoning with that was a lot of what we were doing while we were making this, is kind of puzzling out what, what did we think happened, what did it mean, what does it mean now in the context of this film, and, and some of the themes that we introduced as well. So. And like so much of what I initially thought I could include was the relationships that I had with directors. And in fact, that is virtually impossible to include because there's no evidence of that in the footage in an explicit way. In a, and the way in which everything has to be implicit in this film was a real um, challenge for me in terms of letting go of saying certain things explicitly. And that's where I think Nels was really extraordinary in his capacity to... Um, listen to all of the ideas that I was interested in and, and sort of never say we can't find a way for that to be in the movie. He would just say, well, if it's in the footage, 
Mm-hmm. Maybe that was my way of saying we can't find that in the movie. <laughs> well, I delusion. That's that's why I kept looking more for, for more footage. I kept thinking maybe we'll find it. Because because you can't. This is a project where you can't reshoot. You can't nip nip back off to Bosnia because Nelson wants wants that nice image. That it's, if it's not there in your kind of personal archive, that's it. Well, yeah. and, and there were also events that played to the camera in one way or played for the movie that they were shot in one particular way, but. Uh, they didn't reflect in the context of this film as the story that Kirsten experienced them in. I, I'm trying to think of a specific example of this, but if something overwhelming was going on in front of the camera, it becomes about the subject, and this film is always about the observer. And I think that that tension is you know, one of the ways that we chose what to include and, and what not. And by far the majority of what we included was really about what Kirsten is going through as she's working on these projects. And, and obviously the editing process, because you could have done it sequentially, this is a film that Kirsten worked on in 1999, and then, this is, then, then you get a block of footage. Everyone's asleep at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what... Re- <laughs> good, so I was going to say, what, what, what your input does is to make the connections, which the way that you do it is an artistic process, obviously. I mean, the mo- there's one moment, it's the second time I watched it, there's a moment where the wind of Wyoming becomes the wind of, of Bosnia, and there's no edit. It's it's one minute we're hearing the wind in, in one part of the world, the next minute we're hearing the wind in another, and that's a, an obviously an artistic, creative decision that I'm guessing you made. So then it, then it becomes sort of your interpretation of how Kirsten sees her life, which is a very delicate uh, and responsibility also. Yeah, that's that's the challenge. Anytime you work as an editor with a director, you are helping them make true their vision. But this, when it's a personal film and an essay and such an unusual essay, the bond has to be even tighter in that I'm, on a day-to-day basis, like putting words in your mouth, in essence, and then saying, you know, what do you think of this? Yeah. And And so, you know, in some ways we started to, draw on our friendship which was building during the time we didn't know each other before this but but Kristen's a very amiable person as you see in the film and and she develops deep friendships fast with people so we were drawing on similar backgrounds for example we both have a intense religious background and and a similar take on it in a way that that we're sort of not scarred by it but but uh you know we think about it a lot I grew up Mormon um and you know, not terribly serious about it, but that was that was my background, and, and uh, Kristen is Seventh Day Adventist. <coughs> um, so things like that. Uh, I lost my dad a, a year or two before starting to work on this, and Kristen, you know, that theme united both of us and uh, kids. You know, lots of things like that. So, and, and as you say, you came into the project at a certain point, and I know that there there was a previous uh, version which you've called the trauma cut which was longer and darker and too dark maybe to, to, to For take forward. For human being, you're viewing yeah. this, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, w- was it ever the possibility that you were going to go with a trauma cut or was it like we need, we need to make a little change? You know, I, what I liken it to, there was one time when I went on a shoot um, in Haiti and uh, the journalist who met us at the airport before saying hello held up a photograph of a burned body in my face and said, we have to go and photocopy these. And that was like, welcome, how you doing? You know, and, and, and so this cut that we made at a certain point in the process with Amanda, 
was really as if I was the person holding up the photo and with no perspective at all had put in everything that was really unbearable for me. And, you know, I mean, the maternity ward sequence alone was probably 25 minutes of the film. Uh, and so it was really unbearable. Uh, and, and that and, was... And the, stylistically it was different, too. Yeah, it had voiceover. It had, voiceover. And, it had yeah. me talking on yeah. top of it all. Um, and uh, But it was upon watching that with the producer and uh, Amanda, you know, we were all literally like this because we'd sort of been working on it for months but couldn't see it. But then once it was all laid out and had its cumulative effect, it actually, you know, made the producer worried for me. Her first words when it was done was, are you seeing a therapist? And I was like, yes, I have been for 11 years. And she was like, get a new one. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, it, it was really... Um, it was really clear that I needed some distance. And, you know, in the credits, you know, there's this reference of consulting editors. In fact, in that period of time of me getting distance from the cut and rethinking the film, I reached out to a lot of different editors. And actually, um, this is something I would recommend to all filmmakers. I, I paid people to talk to me, um, not unlike therapists, but I paid really great editors. And I reached out to some of the greatest editors, you know, Walter Murch and... Michael Munn, who created Stories We Tell, Jonathan Oppenheim, who did The Oath, and just talked to them for a day about all the things I was... And didn't show them any footage. Um, but that was really a fantastic experience. And then at the end of eight months of searching and interviewing lots of people, it was very clear to me that Nels was the, the one. <laughs> <laughs> and, then we, and then we basically scrapped that cut. Uh, not scrapped, but we left it behind. I didn't yeah. watch it until yeah. you know, months after I'd been working right. on this. Um, I think there's a, there's a quote that he said, it's, it's kind of all the same material, but it has different context and different light and shade. I mean, is that, it, it sounds like a cliche, but is it accurate? Yeah, I think Kirsten would agree that we added some humor to it. Was part of, I mean, I, when I started watching the footage, and I'd heard the story of this trauma cut that was, you know, really painful to watch, and as I started watching the footage, I, I thought to myself, okay, this film is about trauma. There was no question in the footage that that was, what, that was the right you know, subject in a way. But how could we make it palatable? How could we make it um, a story? How could we make it um, you know, into, into a film? And it was the addition of a few bits of humor. The picking of the, the, the grass in the first scene you know, gets a chuckle. And when these guys watched the first sort of attempt that I took at making something out of this, I think it was those elements that differentiated it from what had existed before and kind of started to make it feel more like the human experience rather than the, uh, you know, yeah. experience of just pure I mean, I think what's so, what's, so, what's so fascinating was that in the versions that we had done before, there was the voiceover on top of all of this traumatic material. And then, you know, together with Nels, we came up with this idea that we would do it without voiceover. And um, we didn't know whether that would work or not. And this first cut that he showed us, and it was really like he went away with the footage and worked for I don't know how many Couple weeks. Couple months. Yeah, 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 yeah. A long time by himself. Um, and then we watched it. I, I was really like, thrilled um, to watch it because it was the first time it felt like in years 
that I could see myself with a little bit of tenderness, you know, because I'd sort of been beating myself up on all these levels for all these things that I hadn't done or these ways in which I'd failed. Um, and it was so generous, like the way, the things that he paid attention to allowed m me to see myself in the footage in a way that I never had before. Because it's interesting, the w I think the lady Velma, the yeah. Serbian lady who talks about you know, how do we deal with this? Because, you know, here we are dealing with these people who've had this incredible trauma in their lives, this incredible horror, which we can, we can, we can try to un understand, but we can't imagine it. And then she says, how, how do we actually process that? How do, how do we deal with that in our lives? And do we have the, do we have the right to deal with that in our lives? Because, you know, w we're dealing with these women and, and, and men who've had all these horrible things. And in a way, the trauma cut, it sounds like it was kind of your way of, of dealing with that in some ways. Well, and also I think it was it was such an unconscious thing. You know, I didn't make it consciously to be as horrifying as it was. And I think the the thing that Velma speaks about of like the difficulty of, um, you know, it, it is obscene to pay too much attention to your own like, oh, I listened to someone tell me about watching their family get murdered in front of them. You know, it's like, oh, I feel bad for you. You know, so, so it's like very difficult for me to pay attention to uh, my own emotional responses to other people's pain. Um, but I, I, I do recognize it as something that, you know, many people who deal with stories at scale, so, you know, teachers, social workers, therapists, police officers, anybody who deals with a lot of violence uh, at scale, uh, therapists, you know, we all have to manage that in some kind of way. And, you know, the things that the brain does to manage that are very interesting, actually. Um, but I did not, I would never in a million years have said, and I don't really own it in any kind of way, that I had post-traumatic stress or secondary trauma or anything. So I wasn't even acknowledging any of that when the <laughs> trauma cut just sort of erupted, basically. Um, and in some ways, some of the rules that we came up with was ways of, of pulling stuff back in and sort of putting things back into compartments that had become uncompartmentalized. Because um, maybe that was a, how Amanda kind of, that was kind of her portrait of you. And Nelsa's portrait of you is the thing that we see here. So it's like if I did a portrait of you, it would be something completely different. And again, it's the artistic process of the editor, which, again, you know, editors never get as much credit as they deserve. And certainly, the, I mean, Orson Welles would always put, the, I think, the editor on the same title card and always said, I think he said the editor was the second director of any film. And in a project like this, clearly, you know, this, this is one where people see what yeah. the editor does. I think Amanda would have made a different thing of me by herself. I think it was me constantly being there, not sort of allowing uh, any of the kindness... Because uh, you know, I, you know, I've worked on all of these human rights stories and lived through this period of time of impact, where like documentaries are supposed to do things and help change things, and and um, in many ways, it was sort of me going through this self-flagellating thing of just like, you know, how does change happen in this world that's full of so much injustice? So I think I was pushing her into the trauma cut, and I, you know, in some ways, I'd love to see the film she would have made during that period of time but it was me expressing all of these things that uh, were really it's kind of me in the Kathy Leichter moment <laughs> of the film <laughs> throwing the paper because you know it's Rwanda it's Bosnia it's Darfur it's instances where we in the comfortable west have sort of said should <laughs> did we do the right thing should we have been there and it happens that you 
were kind of in those places, maybe not when this was all going on. But you've, you know, your kind of, un not well, not unique career, but a very, very special career in that you can actually have a, a wider perspective and say, well, I was in Bosnia, this is how it was dealt with there. I was in Darfur, this is how it was dealt with there. I was in Rwanda. And like, you know, people who, who are just in one of those places don't get that distance. And it's capturing that in the balance with your personal story, which, which is expressed most movingly through your family life. That's the kind of, I would say, an impossible balance, but somehow you kind of, you pretty much get the balance. We don't fall off. Yeah, you know, I it's mean, a it's a wobble, but we right. we stay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the balance was the challenge of making this film. I mean, we the the cut that I showed to to Kirsten and and the producer after a couple months was the 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 format in a way, the form and the style of approach. And then it was many more months, several more months of editing before we figured out how to make that work and and continue and feel right as much as it does on the way through. And then. Secondarily, how to make that into a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because we did watch the, it, it, the first thing I showed was maybe 45 minutes long, and we watched it and we all kind of loved it. But then after 45 minutes, we sort of felt like, okay, I've sort of had enough. And we needed, we found that there were more ways to create tension, suspense, drama that would, that would pull you through um, these questions of, of story and, and, and you know a, a deeper structural approach to the film. Can I ask you something? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no. So no, because a, a lot of Nell's process was hidden to me um, because he was doing it on his own, and I and I there are certain parts of the film like I don't even know where they came from. Uh, no, I'm scared, yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. It's <laughs> because now for me, the moment where the bodies are the dancers' bodies are are falling is sort of. Uh, the place where, in some ways, the film goes as far as it goes in my personal despair, as far as the film goes in, you know, the trauma of others, and then it falls off the ledge. And I'm just curious, how did you get there? To the the bodies falling? Yeah. I I mean, this is, I guess, the great thing about uh, a collaboration. Even though she was in New York and I was in Oakland, I'm watching all this stuff through her eyes. And the footage that Kristen shot for this this film, which is about these strange dancers, they're diving off of... They do these brutally uh, painful dance routines, and one of them is jumping off an a, a increasingly uh, high ledge. And Kristen shot B-roll for that, which for a lot of cinematographers is something you just go do and get like pretty pictures of the area around whatever. And, and it was that rooftop B-roll that she shot that I was watching in the context of these dancers. And what you see, what I saw as I was watching that was that she's looking out and then she's looking down and then she's looking down further and she's looking down further and then she's looking right over the edge of the precipice that she's filming from. And to me, that was the cue that I followed in that scene is that there's, I felt like, don't jump, Kristen. You know, that was, that was kind of my sense of what you were thinking about when you were shooting that stuff. Uh, not really, but but at least metaphorically. Well, I mean, what's... Oh, and then I then I guess just to pair that with the, the you know, diving and, and when the moment in the film called for this sort of self-reflexive, you know, moment of deep, you know, pain or, or humanity, that was the scene that, that we worked, we, we did that for. Well, I was just, I mean, I was just realizing, you know, I, that you 
you learn things over time, and I learned what it looks like to look directly over the ledge when I was working on Kathy Lecter's film about her mother's suicide because her mother had jumped out of an 11th story window and I had to film down into the courtyard where her mother had jumped and and Kathy was afraid to go to the roof and so I was there by myself at that that ledge and you know it's like oh you realize like I learned an angle that I've never seen before and then I've repeated that angle since because it's such an interesting angle to me. Um, but what I love about how you cut it with the Brooklyn footage was then it starts to resonate with September 11th, which was, you know, I lived through in New York and I filmed the towers going down, but that was, you know, sort of never, that felt way too explicit as something to include in the film. But then the way that that moment in the film echoes for me um, and then added to by uh, our incredible sound designer, Pete Horner, who then actually added increased sound of bodies hitting concrete to the sound of... Yeah, we had the sound there, but he yeah. uh, sweetened the, the punches as they... Mm -hmm. I think that's the Hollywood term for it. Sweet, sweet, sweetening the punches. Very sweet punch. and, and, and it does tie in with what Derrida says about um, the philosopher who's looking right at the beginning where he says that the philosopher who's falling in the well when he's looking in the stars. So nice. yeah, yeah No one's ever that. done that so one before. So, so, That's so what's so fun about this film. Everyone makes connections <laughs> you never thought of. Right so on. If you stick with Derrida, you'll, you'll find some connection with, right. with, with something. Um, I have got one eye on the clock because we, we do have a half hour um, slot here. I'm just wondering if anybody is screaming out with a, with a question because, yeah, we've got a question at the back left, back right, sorry. Did everybody hear the question? Yeah. Yeah, so the scene that takes place in the stadium and the scene with the people jumping are, I think, I was trying to think about this, but those are the two that have non-sync sound, basically, which means that there's sound you're hearing from a different location playing over the, the same footage, or, or playing over different And footage. the Bosnian music. And the Bosnian yeah. music, but that's, it's, yeah. you know, sort of part of it. Uh, and the Penn State, uh, the football game is something that, I started looking at this footage, and again, I, I feel like I was sort of inhabiting Kirsten as I'm watching what she shot, and I started looking, and it seems so Lenny Riefenstahl to me that, that there were these crazy people, you know, ranting over something insane, but it was a massive group, and, and I was like, wow. And then I, I ran that question by her, and she said, didn't you say that, yeah, you'd, you'd thought of that specifically before yeah. you were shooting? And, and yeah, well, I mean, you know, instead of going back and trying to, once that happened, then I, I remembered, like, when I was a kid, I had seen the photo of Lenny Reifenstahl in an encyclopedia. I had seen a woman with a camera and, and, and sort of oh. wanted to know who she was. And as, a, like, an 11-year-old, I had written some paragraph about it. So I was, like, desperately searching for that piece of paper and that's how I found the piece of paper that uh, said that God is kind. But so that's like the bouncing back and forth <laughs> of ideas that happen. Um, but, you know, sort of why you decided to cut that sequence. I mean, I understand yeah. you, so, like, what got just, into you? Because I, I, <laughs> I mean, he promised he wasn't going to do any montages, right, and then he I, did it. I don't like montages, but, but uh, 
this this one was was something that I just kind of started doing, and it was fun, and it was a bit of a joke to myself, you know. And and this is so nice the way that Chris and I worked is she was really trusting in the process of you know let's try things, and so I was kind of making them sing along to the weird song, and you know making this thing, and then we made it. We we looked at it soon after, and we loved it, but it was sort of funny and strange. And so then throughout the rest of the process, that was one scene that we kept either taking out and then thinking, oh, you know, maybe this is best not part of this movie. And then we go, no, no, where can we fit, fit that back in? Because we would miss it. Yeah, because she and I both loved it. And, and it, it maybe, I mean, actually a couple people have responded to it recently, but maybe it's one of the more random scenes in the film. Mm but we were able to trust ourselves in the process enough to, to say we we do want to include that. And yeah. it became a very, de- everything that's in there is pretty deliberate. It's considered. very deliberate in, 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 in the sequencing. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think what's amazing is, you know, how much we love that sequence um, and the things we thought it meant, but then when we found the place for it in the film, that amplified its meaning completely and sort of goes into this thinking about nationalism and thuggery and men and women and abuse and silence and all these things start happening because of placing it next to, you know, witness number 99. And and that hadn't happened before when we would watch it as a sequence and, and it sort of burst apart in all these interesting ways because of where Nels was eventually able to find the spot. Because it, it is, a, it's a sort of healing ritual that these people are doing because there's been this huge community, you know, international headlines, terrible sexual abuse, you know, how is it handled, all this kind of thing. And this is clearly there, you know, even the, even the, the mascot in his you know, right. outfit is part of this healing circle. Well, but it's also a refusal. Uh, at that game, they were supposed to do a moment of silence and the crowd couldn't hold it together to do a moment of silence to respect the victims of sexual abuse. So it was, all, it was both the communal healing and the communal refusing. And, you know, I mean, I think it's always so interesting when a place gets tainted by a terrible thing that happened there once in history. And, you know, many of the terrible things of history are become a place. So if you say Jasper, Texas to an American... They know that's where a man got dragged to death. If you say Auschwitz, we know what happened there, right? So, so I mean, I think places bear these names, and then the people who have to live into the future in those places really suffer in strange and unusual ways because of locating. And I think that was one of our ideas around, you know, the naming of the place between ex- each section. That that's a resonant way to categorize things as opposed to saying the chronology or the name of the film I shot for. We did a lot of searching of sort of how would we make the jump from place to place and what would we name it or not name it. Because sometimes it's a direct, you know, we go from one to the other, there's nothing in between. At other times there's this kind of formal intervention whereby it goes to black and then we get again the the very kind of, it's, it's a uniform font and all this kind of thing. And again, this is something which is an art, a creative artistic decision by the editor, um, and, and it, uh, is it, it to some degree instinctive, or do you have like a, you know, is it like this feels right? Is it right? You know, you check and then you do it, or, or do you have a, a wider template in your mind? Yeah, my my process. I'm a formalistic thinker, I think, in general. So the way I can wrap my mind around how to even know how to start making a film is to come up with some rules and a sort of basis and an approach to something, and 
you know, we kind of thought, let's, let's do this as separate scenes. And then, you know, I constructed those pretty carefully. And then we began to realize, and, and it, a lot of these uh, inputs were Kirsten's on where we can leave those cards out to get this maximum juxtaposition. Uh, the wind sequence being one of the great ones. Um, and the pacing, you know, sometimes it involves pacing or sometimes it involves trying to, to uh, carry a theme across two scenes or sometimes it involves just letting emotion, you know, set in before you go on to the next topic. So we had a formal starting point and then we made some number, some not a truly limited number, but we made some departures from that form. Because I know you've studied n neuroscience, and it's and it, <laughs> in my it was, desperation it, it was, it was all to getting contain my craziness. <laughs> it was, it, but but you specifically applied to the editing process. I think it, I read one interview where you yeah. were talking about you did some very involved research into into theoretical neuroscience, how the brain actually deals with sequential information. Did, were you sending Nels kind of graphs and I charts? Mean, you know, these are all we like. We really have fun talking to each other, and I think we were bringing up as many ideas as we found relevant. Um, and that was what was really thrilling about the relationship was that you know, I realized that it would be it would be my ideal relationship with a director to you know, talk about all of the ideas and then be placed in a world where I could follow with the camera. Um, and so that the, the sort of ideal world with him was let's talk about as many ideas as possible and then, you know, play it, see what happens, talk about it again, and then let him go back into the sort of the magic space of cutting. That's his magic space. My magic space is, is uh, you know, shooting. And, and, and I don't want a director talking to me while I'm shooting which is what I would be doing if I was in the edit room, that's for sure. Right. But we talked about <laughs> books, we talked about movies, we talked about neuroscience, uh, anything, anything that we could communicate was kind of just fodder for new ideas and ways to sort of accentuate things in scenes. It sounds like a dream job for an editor because I've, I've heard of editors that don't have this, this experience. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is unusual. I mean, I do like working remotely, and I've done that on several films, and it's a nice um, you know, way to... Uh, I mean, it, there's definitely a huge amount of director involvement, but there's a nice sort of balance to, that, to the way that works. And I, I, I love doing it that way. That said, getting to edit a film like this with such a broad scope and such a wide-open, you know, as a formalist, a wide-open idea on how to go at something is something that I don't expect ever to get that same opportunity. I and mean, I it's so unusual. And, and, and I, was, I, mean, I was really interested in pleasure. Like, I was interested in pleasure in our relationship. I was interested in, in like, the pleasure of cinema and how can we push whatever we we're making. Like, I was much more interested in how can I really ask my questions for real uh, not just like for getting on in the in the service of a movie, but actually for real. Like, wh what do I want to do? What can we do with the footage of the baby? Because that's a real ethical question for me, and I'm not like dialing that in on any level. Like, I'm really troubled by it, and we stayed with that as a as a real problem we were struggling with. But did did you find out what happened to that baby? Because I mean, that's the second time I watched it. And I'm like, and I'm like, <gasps> oh yeah, I know exactly what happened because I filmed that baby for thirty more hours and I filmed that baby die. 
So I know exactly what happened to that baby. Um, and that's what I have to live with. And that the image of that baby dead was used in the other film in a way that I don't feel, um, you know, totally honors the context of it. Um, and so I, I own the responsibility of being the person who filmed that, albeit not on purpose, but the baby did die in, you know, in front of me. And so, so, and it was already filmed before I understood. Uh, but, but so the, so that that kind of responsibility that we have, that is, you know, that marks you profoundly, then what do you do with that and how do you attempt to express it? And so, you know, leaving it in this film as an unknown, I'm saying it here because this is what we had to struggle with in the editing process was our knowledge of what had happened and then how much do we choose to share with the audience or not. Um, we are against the clock, so I think yeah, we've got time for... Yeah, had its yeah. hand up forever. The, the, the very patient gentleman on the left. Most of our material was never in the film that it was shot for, um, which you know makes that an easy. Yeah. Uh, and the the stuff that was, I don't think I watched. Well, right, you films. yeah, you tried. I mean, he tried purposely Fahrenheit not to watch the film that everybody's seen. Yeah, and that scene is in it, although yeah. not in its entirety. We have. Extra but you know, the footage of the young woman in the abortion clinic—that's in trapped as a cutaway. So it's just a shot. There's no, you know, there's no sound over it. Um, but the, but the point about it, this feeling like Russia's is something that I, you know, it was enjoying about it too. This is a, uh, the look of this is how footage comes to me looking, and so it was kind of I was trying to retain not the experience of what it felt to edit it, but what it felt to be looking at raw material yeah. as close as we can get to Kirsten's experience there. And so there are moments when the camera lifts a little bit away that any competent editor would cut out, um, but in this film those were the point, you know, these slight touches um, of humanity behind the lens was... But I mean, I think to Nels's great credit, a lot of the scenes are cut, but they feel like raw material. Um, and, and I think that's what he does particularly artfully well, especially since as editors, you, you don't have practice doing <laughs> that kind of work. Yeah. It's almost the opposite of what an editor usually does. Um, so, yeah, we are running out of time. I hope it has been um, an informative talk. Whenever you watch a film, whatever it is, just see if you can see who the editor's name is, and after a while you'll start seeing... You'll see who the good ones are, and and you'll see who the bad ones are. One of them right and here. One of them's right here. One so of please the great ones right here. Please join me and thank our <laughs> guests tonight. Thank you. I'll, I'll say the names again. Nels Bangeter and Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Johnston. Thank you. And thank you very much, Neil Young, also, for stepping in as moderator because Nicholas had to leave earlier, unexpectedly. Kirsten, Nels, thank you much again. This was the already assembling reality program. We're going to a sort of really, we're moving towards the end of ITVA. I would like to thank my colleague, Laura van Halsema, for making this program. I would like to thank all the filmmakers, uh, moderators for viewing.